guardian angels and patron saints, pray for us. Today, uh, you may have noticed on your way in, but there are some booklets by the doorways titled uh, The Seventh Sundays of St. Joseph. A few weeks ago, actually the Feast of the Holy Family, right around the first of the year, uh, if you were here, Father Anand and I preached a little bit about St. Joseph, and that got us thinking. We thought we wanted to promote some devotion to him, uh, to spend some time as a parish meditating on really the second greatest saint, Mary being the greatest, uh, Joseph is a distant second, of course, not being immaculately conceived. Nonetheless, Joseph has an incredibly important place in the history of salvation and in our spiritual lives, our interior lives. Joseph was a quiet person. Everything that happened in his life was driven by his interior relationship with the Lord. So we would really like to promote uh, a devotion to him. So what we're going to be doing is using this booklet, immediately following the conclusion of Mass, starting tonight and going for the next six Sundays leading up to his feast day in March, uh, we're going to do a short meditation following Mass using this booklet. Now, um, we'll have copies of this in Spanish as well, but the idea is that we would be able to do this together. If you are not going to be here for one Sunday, feel free to take a booklet with you, but our goal is to leave them here in the church so that they're ready for use on Sunday and so that we can do that meditation together. You don't have to stay for that. The Mass will have concluded, will have given your blessing. If you need to go, go. But if you can stay, uh, please do over the next few Sundays. And I hope that this will start to uh, awaken a desire and a devotion to spend time in the presence of St. Joseph and acquire his intercession as a protector and the guardian of, of our spiritual lives, even as he was entrusted with the guardianship of Jesus. So today... What I would like to really speak to is, uh, at the conclusion of our Catholic Schools Week, some of the things that have been on my mind and some developments in our Catholic school that I think are important to speak about to the parish as a whole. So I'd like to take this opportunity to reflect a little bit over that. Last week we heard from the prophet Isaiah speaking about that the people who have been dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And over those who dwell in darkness, a light has risen. That seemed to me to be a beautiful summary of the nature of what happens in our mission as educators and formators of the young. Now, this is a mission of our entire parish. The Catholic school is bound up intimately with our work and with our existence. And so I don't think it's a, a misuse of our time to reflect a little bit on that. Why do we have a Catholic school and what is the goal of education? So I'll begin with that very question. What, what is the goal? What does it mean to be educated? What are the qualities of a person who is well-educated? There are a lot of different answers to that question that could be given. A lot of answers are given. Some would say the goal of education is the capacity to, to, to take responsibility for your own life. That is to obtain work to navigate the difficulties of your life, and then one day to be able to have a family of your own and hand those qualities on to your children. Others might say uh, the goal of education is to produce good workers, people who can uh, be competent in an area of, of specialty, whatever that may be, so that society can function well. Others would say, 
Well, the goal of education is to inculcate certain attitudes and perspectives so as to make society more just, more inclusive. Now, all of those things are good, but those aren't the reasons the church educates, primarily. Those reasons aren't wrong so much as incomplete. The church has an extremely comprehensive account of the goal of education. And I would summarize that by saying the goal of education is happiness. The goal of education is happiness. And what do we mean by happiness? Not necessarily a, a feeling of self-satisfaction self or contentment, but rather two things, wisdom and virtue. Those are the ingredients of happiness. Those who possess wisdom and virtue are called and truly are happy. Wisdom being the knowledge of the truth and virtue being the imitation of the truth. That is, I live it out. It doesn't just stay in my head, but it finds its way into my actions and my life, and I live in the truth. If we lack those two things, if I prefer foolishness or short-sightedness to wisdom, if I prefer vice to virtue, even though I be rich or powerful or famous or free of concern or care in my life, I'm not happy. I'm not happy. That is, I'm not living the way that God made me to exist. For this reason, we create schools in order to form our sons and daughters in wisdom and in virtue. Schools which communicate the habits of mind and activity of mind, the joy of knowledge and of learning, the joy of reading, and the principles of clear thinking. Things which have to be present in your life in order to live your life well. So, our emphasis in a school is on wisdom and virtue. We have to ask ourselves, where would our children acquire these things if we did not form them in them? If we did not hand these things on to them? If we did not create a space that was explicitly dedicated to forming them in wisdom and virtue? Where would they acquire those things? It's worth thinking about that because we, we can't just say, well, good luck, do your best, we'll hope everything works out for you in the end. <laughs> we can't do that as a church. We can't say to parents who have been given the gift of new life in their families and have been given a vocation to form those lives in the image and likeness of God and in an understanding of who they are, we can't just say, good luck. Uh, we hope you figure it out. That's our responsibility as well, to support and promote that. And so we create schools that, that dedicate themselves to these kinds of very important formation, these, very, these, this kind of very important formation, excuse me. For instance, the habit of reading. Every study will tell you that a child that acquires a habit of reading and a love for reading early in life is going to, is going to stand out is going to advance beyond their peers in almost every other area of life based on the fact that they're able to handle words and enjoy words and ideas and use their imagination in ways that, that books and 
good books allow us to do. And we don't just encourage reading, we encourage feeding young minds on the best kinds of reading, the things that are going to elevate and purify their minds and their imagination and their memories, to fill them with experiences of the good and the true and the beautiful so that as adults, they will have a rich treasury from which to draw. Now, there are many other schools that offer these educational goals. They offer good goals. However, when we see a secular perspective on education that doesn't share our vision for what wisdom and virtue entails, we have to recognize that's not going to do the job. And that's true despite the fact that many good and dedicated people attend those schools and teach in those schools. People who are well-intentioned and professional and dedicated to the work of education. The reason for that difference is that in a secular environment, those goals define how we go about the practice of education. Here's one example that I could give among many. What is a moral fact? And what is an opinion? Among the standards that are uh, required of secular schools is to teach children from a very young age, as young as the second grade, that there are two kinds of, thing, two kinds of things that we have to divide our, our knowledge into. <coughs> On the one hand, we have facts. Facts are things that can be tested or proven. And then there are opinions. These are what someone thinks, or someone feels, <coughs> or what someone believes. And that includes morality. Because morality can't be proven, it can't be tested. It's an opinion. <coughs> Excuse me. So, <coughs> when we introduce that distinction into, into a young mind and reinforce it, what happens? Okay, well, Take the opinion, let's say it's not good to drink alcohol under the age of 21. Is that a fact or an opinion? Well, it sounds like an opinion. Vegetarians are healthier than people who eat uh, lots of meat. <clears throat> Is that a fact or an opinion? It's probably an opinion. I mean, I don't know how we can test that. How about copying homework assignments is wrong? Is that a fact or an opinion? Under this definition, we'd say that's an opinion. A child would very reasonably say, well, you told me things that I think or believe about right and wrong are opinions, so cheating on my homework is wrong. That's your opinion. You can imagine a seventh grader who was feeling uh, aggressive throwing that in your face, right? What about the statement, all men are created equal? Is that a fact or opinion? You see where that kind of perspective leads. What's the basis then of teaching about right and wrong? Well, we'd say, that's just what society wants us to believe and take away from our socialization process. No wonder 
Most people in our country don't believe that there is such a thing as right and wrong in absolute terms. They are what we call moral relativists. There's no such thing as, a, as something that's always and everywhere wrong. It depends on all kinds of things, like your intentions or the circumstances. Well, we're reaping what we've sown. There are such things as moral facts. We believe that those are taught to us by revelation, that we can enter into an understanding of, th of those things by our reason, by thinking about the truth and coming to understand that in a, in a more profound way, and that we have a responsibility to hand that on to our sons and daughters, our children and our grandchildren, so that they too may come to understand what it means to be able to do right and what it means to be forgiven for doing wrong. Again, let's ask ourselves, where will our children learn these things if not from us? If not from us. And so I'd like to emphasize the fact that we are blessed here at Christ the King with an excellent school, as I've mentioned before. Uh, our faculty and parents, our staff, and all those involved with the work of Christ the King School were awarded the Archbishop Nauman Award for Excellence, the only school to receive it last year in our diocese. So an enormous sign of approval and encouragement for us. And I want to, uh, again, congratulate our school for all of the hard work and dedication, our teachers and our parents for that, for that wonderful recognition. So all of these things I say, knowing also that we have a, a, a religious, edu pro religious education program here that tries to help uh, children who are not attending our Catholic school to still come to know the Lord, to be, to be catechized and evangelized and come to know Jesus in the context of the family of God. But we know that this is not sufficient. One hour a week or an hour and a half a week is not sufficient to hold at bay the forces of our culture which are encroaching ever more aggressively upon our young people. Our parents already have enough struggles as it is. Wouldn't it be nice to have a community of people that are dedicated to the same kinds of goals? Where I'm not in conflict with the message that my, student, that my children are receiving at school, or the culture that my children are, the air that they're breathing at school, but rather a place that supports and affirms and encourages us in the pursuit of those things. What happens when a family who, when their 10-year-old son asks, well, I would like a smartphone because all of my friends have smartphones, because all of my friends spend the entire weekend playing video games on their smartphones or on their tablets. Why is it that you won't let me have a smartphone? Or a young woman, I'll use this example in the Hispanic community, a young woman who perhaps sees her friends receiving these elaborate celebrations for the Quince Años celebration, a kind of debut for a young woman. Right, spending sometimes tens of thousands of dollars on those celebrations. And I would like that. I mean, don't you love me? I'm your daughter. Can I have one of those parties? Those children start to think, okay, well, if my family's not doing those things, we must be weird, we're cheap, we're, we're strange, we don't fit in. And as much as parents try to offer that guidance, when the world around them 
contradicts that, where are they left? Fighting a battle that eventually they get tired of and often, very understandably, give in. We owe it to them to support and create a culture where their goals as a family, wisdom and virtue, can be reinforced and promoted and handed on as a beautiful way of life, not a weird one. So I issue this to our families to, to invite you all to consider, if you've not, uh, making connections with our school. If you have children that aren't enrolled in our Catholic school, want to uh, announce and, and invite you to, to consider doing so. We have many organizations in our diocese that raise funds specifically to give scholarships for children who need financial assistance. And I would like the children of our parish to take advantage of those scholarships. So if you know of family members who think, nope, that's not, that's not within our means, please tell them, talk to the school. Please ask, we can make arrangements. We would love to be able to meet and show our, uh, show our school to those who, who may be interested in looking for this kind of community, this kind of family. Um, I'm so pleased with what is happening there at our school and I'm very excited about a number of the uh, developments that we're going to do to continue to strive for excellence in our school in the coming years. So, we hear today this call to be purified, to be refined, and that uh, is something that we all need, but particularly in our context of our willingness to, to sacrifice and to be generous in the formation of, of the new generation, to hand on what we have been given so that God would be glorified in our church, God would be glorified in our neighborhood, in our country, and that souls would be saved. Young people would come to know the living God, to see their whole world through the eyes of faith, and so enjoy this beautiful happiness, the happiness that we were created for. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.